so grateful to be reminded this morning, Lord, over and over again through each of those testimonies, there was a, a note, a, a theme of the faithfulness of you, our Heavenly Father, of, of you, our great God, of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Uh, Lord, there's so much uncertainty in the world we live in. There's so much uncertainty in, in, in so many of our lives. Father, we never, as we're going to talk about here in just a moment in your word, we never truly know what a given day might hold in store, whether it's exactly what we saw coming or something else in entirely. Lord, there's so few things on planet earth we can look at and say, it's always, they are always, this is always faithful. But you, Father, are a faithful God. You are a faithful King. You are a faithful Lord. And, and you do, Lord, as you reminded us here. And I just love hearing these testimonies, Lord, of, of you opening the eyes of one student and leader after another to the fact that you love us so much and you love all of us so much, Lord, regardless of our circumstances or our background or our wealth or our poverty, Father, of our successes or our failures. You showed the same love to all of us when you sent Christ to the cross. He shed the same blood for all of us when he died on the cross. He rose in victory for all of us who would believe on the third day. And Father, we, we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We never can and we never could. And yet you're faithful. Father, in those places this morning, today, where we need to be reminded of your faithfulness, many others of us, Father, in personal ways, Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts that that is truly the way you are, that as your word says, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever that you have been faithful, that you are going to be faithful now in this moment, that you will be tomorrow when we wake up and, and, uh, and that every day to follow till, till, till Jesus comes back for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are faithful. Father, we thank you that your word is faithful as well, that every word of it is true, that, uh, that every line and every verse and every story and every challenge, every command, Father, all of it is literally, the scripture says, God breathed. It's written for us. It's written to show us who you are, what you've done, and to equip us to walk faithfully in a fallen world. And fathers, we open it again this morning. I don't know where anybody's mind or heart is. I don't know what sort of burdens or joys we carried in with us. You know all those things. You know every heart in the room. And Father, I pray that you will take the things that we're about to look at in the scripture and use them in very personal and particular ways in each of our lives today. Father, not just so that we can live better lives, but, but so that we can magnify Christ, that we can leave here in a little while loving him and, and glorifying him a little bit more than when we came. Father, we realize as always that if anything good's going to happen in this time together, in these minutes in your word, uh, that we desperately, deeply need the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. So we say, Holy Spirit, come, and you be the one who teaches us. Father, may you come by your Holy Spirit and guide us in truth because your word is truth and we need to hear the truth. I pray that your spirit would be present here to guard us from error and confusion and misunderstanding. We're going to tread into some deep waters in the scripture today, Lord, and we need you to keep us on the right path and headed the right direction. Father, I pray in these minutes together that your spirit would deliver us from all of those things that we carried in with us that threatened to, uh, to, to close up our ears, to blind our eyes, to cloud our hearts. Just sweep it all away so that we do, in fact, in this time together, see Jesus. Oh, Lord, may we see him clearly this morning in your word. May we see him only this morning in your word. And Father, let us leave rejoicing here in a little while, not because everything's better since we came to church, but because we were reminded over and over and over again that our God is faithful. 
And it's in the glorious, faithful, wonderful name of Jesus that we pray, asking all these things in great confidence that you will do exactly what you promised. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. And as you are, we'll dismiss boys and girls for Children's Church if they are among us here this morning. Five-year-olds up to second graders can start heading out as they get some time in God's Word, and we're going to, as always, uh, do the same. I want you to turn in your Bible this morning uh, once again to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Specifically, I want you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where uh, over the course of this week and next week, we are going to finish our study uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. At least that's the aim. That's the, uh, the goal where we're headed as, uh, as we continue to build on and to dig into, to contemplate this theme of readiness. What does it mean to be ready as followers of Jesus Christ in a world that is uh, very, very at times very difficult, very confusing, and certainly stained in every way uh, by sin? And I want to read the passage right off the bat this morning. So if you'd make your way there quickly, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 1 through 11 is where we're going to look. This morning we'll look at those first 11 verses. Next Sunday we'll finish out uh, by looking at the rest. And then at some point in the future, if you're wondering about 2 Thessalonians, I, I do intend to get there, but it may be a while before that happens. We're just going to take things right now as they are here in front of us. So 1 Thessalonians 5, going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read down, as I said, through verse 11, whereas Paul writes, this is what the Word of God says. He's writing to the Thessalonians. He's writing to us. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we, as believers, are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. You know, most of the time, the old notion, the old sort of saying that you never quite know what a day holds in store, most of the time as we go through life, uh, that statement can be counted on to be true. You never know for sure what a day may hold in store. You may have a carefully planned out calendar. You may have a meticulously planned schedule. You may, when you wake up in the morning, think you know what a day holds in store, but chances are life has shown us time and again... <laughs> that often we don't. And that's because any number of variables can arise. Any number of situations or circumstances can, can occur. Positive, negative, joyful, sorrowful, but any number of surprises or challenges can arise on any given day to redirect what you thought your day was going to be all about. But then there are other days. 
usually fewer and farther in between, where you can look ahead to them, you can look at a certain day on the calendar coming up at some point in the future, and you say, but yeah, that one's going to be different. Uh, That day coming up on my calendar will be special. That day that is coming up at some point in the future is going to be one really big day. I'm talking about occasions like a wedding day. I'm talking about things like a graduation day, like the first day of school for a child, like the last day of work for someone who's retiring. Special occasions that by definition and by design require a great deal of planning and preparation and thought in advance so that you are, as our theme in Thessalonians says, ready when it comes. And as the final chapter of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5 begins, the Apostle Paul, having clued us in, you remember last week at the end of chapter 4, about an event, about a coming event that we refer to as the rapture, Paul, as chapter 5 begins, continues writing along the same line. He is still talking about the end of the world as we know it. He's still talking about what we call the last days, the things to come, but he shifts his attention as chapter 5 begins to one of the biggest days, if you will, that the Bible talks about, that that history has ever seen, something that is called the day of the Lord. Look at verse 2, and you'll see he mentions it there again. He says, for you yourselves know, he's writing to Christians, full well that the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord is going to come. And then what Paul goes on to do in the rest of this passage is explain how we, as followers of Jesus Christ, can get ready for it. How we as believers are to prepare for the fact that something called the day of the Lord is coming, and we are to know about it and be ready for it in advance. However, before we talk about that, before we can get into his instruction on how to prepare for it, why to prepare for it, what preparation for it as believers looks like, we need to answer one very important question first. And frankly, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, and it's this. What is the day of the Lord? Paul says the day of the Lord is going to come. The first thing we're going to dig into this morning in God's Word is simply we're going to seek to resolve this question. What exactly is Paul talking about when he says the day of the Lord will come? So if you're ready, I want you to look at your Bible once again. First couple of verses of 1 Thessalonians 5, where again, as we look in verse 1, here's what Paul wrote to those early believers. He said, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, and we could get into a lot of definition of what times and epochs are, but what Paul is simply saying is this, as to the end of the world as we know it, as to what we commonly refer to as the last days, as the end times, Paul says, brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, as to the end of the world as we know it, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now, why does Paul say that? He says, you don't need me to write to you about the end of the world as we know. Well, in part, Paul says that. In part, he says it because as Jesus himself once said to his disciples, God hasn't told us when, uh, exactly when those days are going to come. Jesus said himself, no one but the Father alone knows when the Son is coming back. No one but the Father alone knows the day of Christ's return, which is really what sets all of these events into motion. So part of the reason Paul says you have no need of anyone to write these things to you is Paul had nothing to say on the subject. <laughs> Paul says even Jesus didn't know the day when he's coming back. So we're not going to get into dates and times and occasions and seasons. When it happens is known only to God the Father. 
But Paul also says that in another respect, that you have no need of anything to be written to you, to these believers, because unlike the rapture, which we talked about last week, and we saw that the rapture was a mystery never before revealed, they needed to be informed about that because they didn't understand it. Unlike the event we call the rapture, this event called the day of the Lord is all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets talked about it frequently. In fact, there's something in the neighborhood of 19 or 20 different occasions where Old Testament prophets, major and minor, wrote about this thing called the day of the Lord. And frankly, here's what you need to know about it. They did not paint a pretty picture. When the Old Testament prophets talked about the day of the Lord, it was a fearsome, ferocious thing they were writing and speaking on God's behalf about. And while you don't need to turn there, you can if you want to. We'll put the references just so you know where I am up on the screen behind me. Let me just give you a sample, just a sample of what the Old Testament prophets said about the day of the Lord. One of them is Isaiah. And he said this in Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6. <laughs> Here's his first word, wail. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. How's that for a start? Got you excited, fired up about the day of the Lord? Let me share a little bit more. Let's go from uh, one of the major prophets, Isaiah, to one of the minor prophets, a prophet by the name of Joel. Joel talks a lot about the day of the Lord, and he says this in Joel chapter 1, verse 15, alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near, he repeats Isaiah, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. In chapter 2, just a few verses later in the book of Joel, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. The prophet Zephaniah Another one I'm sure you've spent a lot of time in, as have I. Zephaniah, right? We all know about his story. Zephaniah says this, Zephaniah 1, 14. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation. This is just what you came to church for this morning, right? You're fired up about this. Here we go. A day of darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against fortified cities, against high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so they will walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. All the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Not a pretty picture. That's just a sample. A lot more about the day of the Lord, and I can tell you this much. Most of it says exactly the same thing. A day is coming, and it will be, if you want a word, a fearsome day. But you know what else? That's not all the Old Testament prophets said about the day of the Lord. They did say this over and over again, that while for most of the world, for much of the world, it will be a day of destruction and doom and judgment and, and, and fearsome activity, at the same time, those very same prophets, listen to me, also drop clues that for other people, for certain people... The day of the Lord, this day of ferocious, fearsome judgment, will be for others a time of unfathomable blessing. How about that? 
A time as well of unfathomable blessing. Listen again to the prophet Joel. I'm just going to go to a couple of these very same prophets. It says in Joel 2.18, he's still writing about the day of the Lord. He says, then the Lord will be zealous for his land. He will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. It says a little bit further down in verse 21, Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. The prophet Zephaniah writes likewise, after writing about the terror of the day of the Lord, says this about it for others as well. Zephaniah 3 Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. What are we being told? by the prophets in the Old Testament. And again, what did Paul say to the Thessalonians? You guys know all this stuff anyway. You know it all already. I don't need to remind you again because you've seen it and heard it before. What's he saying? He's saying that while for some people on planet Earth, the day of the Lord will be the worst day ever, there will be others for whom it's going to be the very best. Going to be the worst for some and the best for others. Because what you find when you take those Old Testament prophecies and others like them, and then you bring them, now go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you bring them back, to what Paul says here, what you begin to realize is, as you may have gathered already, the day of the Lord is no ordinary 24-hour span of time. It's no ordinary day. In fact, it's not just a single 24-hour period of night and day. Instead, what the Bible seems to say to us and reveal to us about the day of the Lord is that it's not just a 24-hour span. It is an era And it is an era in which, listen to me, God will deal more directly and more dramatically in the affairs of mankind than he ever has before. God's hand is going to be clearly moving on planet Earth. Specifically, here's what I think, and I I understand there are various interpretations of this, and people far smarter and more studied than me have different opinions, and, 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 and that's fine, but here's what I believe the Bible is telling us, that the day of the Lord will specifically encompass What we refer to as the seven-year tribulation, the time of God's wrath being poured out on earth, and the thousand-year millennial kingdom of Christ that follows, when Jesus rules over the earth in justice. I believe the day of the Lord encompasses the tribulation followed by the millennium. Or, to put it in simpler terms that I can hang on to and remember, here's what I think I understand as I study the scriptures the day of the Lord to be all about. The day of the Lord is a time that's coming when everyone will get exactly what God has promised them. All right, let me say that again. The day of the Lord is a time in the future that's coming when God will give everyone exactly what he has promised them. What do I mean by that? I mean those who have refused and rebelled against him will be judged. And those who have repented and received Christ will be blessed. That's what the Bible says. And in verses 2 and 3, what Paul does is he uses a couple of very simple, very easy to understand illustrations uh, to tell us a couple of things just to uh, impress on us what it's all about. A couple of things we really need to know. So I want you to look at verses 2 and 3 with me again. He says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like, here's the first illustration, just like a thief in the night. 
While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like, second metaphor, second illustration, labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, what those two illustrations have in common is they both speak of suddenness, something that comes sudden and unexpected, or at least not anticipated in the moment, a thief in the night, a woman going into labor. The first illustration says, or it's teaching us, that the day of the Lord, when it comes, it will be sudden and unexpected, like a thief in the night. You know what the second one tells us, like a woman in labor? That it will become suddenly and there will be no escape. When it happens, it will come to completion. There will be no warning, and there will be no escape. And the more I dig into these matters for whatever it's worth, and again, many, many people may see this, students of the word differently, but the more I dig into this, these matters, the more convinced I am becoming as I try to put them together for my own understanding, that particularly due to the emphasis on its suddenness, I believe, or I'm coming to believe more and more strongly, that it is the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ, what we looked at last week, that sets the whole thing into motion. That when God moves in that way to return for his people, we talked about it last Sunday, so we won't revisit it, but that's when the day of the Lord begins. Seven years of wrath, a thousand years of blessing. And another reason I think so is because that would explain what Paul says at the end of the passage we're looking at this morning. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 11, therefore, and this seems so ironic given everything I've just said to you, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. Build each other up with the fact that God is coming in clouds and wrath and doom and destruction to pour out his judgment on the earth. Now, why would Paul say that? Encourage each other with these words. Well, because he says some other things here in between. Between the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 11. Some very encouraging things. And by my count, there are at least four of them. Four answers to the question, how can we be encouraged? As believers in Jesus Christ this morning, how can we be encouraged by this teaching? Paul said, it is going to happen. The prophets were right. It is going to come. Here's what it's going to be like. And you should, as a believer, be encouraged by that. How? Well, in the time we have left, let me give you four answers to that question. Four, from this passage, great sources of encouragement with the day of the Lord in view, with the fact that we are promised these things are going to come. First one is this in verses four and five. The first source of encouragement we can find in this passage, again, just with that very brief overview sketch of the day of the Lord, is we can be encouraged, knowing it's coming, know that even in this sense, God is faithful, he's going to do what he said he's going to do. We can be encouraged, number one, when we know our identity. We can be encouraged with this truth when we know and understand our identity as believers in Jesus Christ. I have said to you before, and you'll hear me say it again, that when you know who you are, it changes how you live. When you understand your identity in any walk of life, any situation, it changes the way you function in that context. And nowhere, nowhere is that more true than in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Or nowhere should it be more true than in a relationship with Christ. Because even just this sample of what we've seen about the day of the Lord, what I've shown you, it's scary stuff, right? This is frightening. If God is going to be faithful to this, these are going to be terrifying days the day of the Lord, a terrifying time. And so we might look at that and go, well, we should be scared by that. Well, maybe, maybe not. Because if you're looking at verses 4 and 5, actually 3, 4, and 5, there's a contrast, and it's a really, really, really important one. Look at verse 3 again, what it says. I want you to pay attention to the pronouns. 
Paul says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now put that next to verses 4 and 5, but you, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We, Paul now entering into company with them, we are not of night or of darkness. What's the difference between verse 3 and verses 4 and 5? Identity. Do you, listen to me, do you know Jesus Christ or not? That's the difference. There's a they and there's a you. There's a they and there's a we. And the difference is your personal relationship and standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never trusted him as Savior, you are among the they of verse 3. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. If you have repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ, you are among the we of verses 4 and 5. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. Let me ask him, how encouraging is that, right? Because what does it say? This will come upon them, but it will not come upon you in the same way. Now, again, there are different, I acknowledge, there are very different interpretations about what the day of the Lord is like and when it comes and, and how it unfolds and all the rest. But Paul says we should be encouraged. Whatever it it turns out to be, however it all goes down, as we talked about last week, we can be encouraged. If what I said to you earlier, that this all begins with the rapture, well, that's a great source of encouragement, because what does that mean? We won't be here. Christ will have returned for his people, and we won't be here at all. But even if that's not true, even if that's not the way it goes down, even so, say we are on earth, and we see this begin to unfold and begin to happen, what can we be assured by underneath all the externals? God is being faithful to his promises, that it's going somewhere according to his plan. We could be encouraged, even if that were the case, that God is doing exactly what he said he would, to purge the world of sin forever. And here's the cool thing. Either way, if you're a believer, you're on the winning side. How about that? Be encouraged. You are among the we who will be under God's blessing and his protection. So there's great encouragement when you know your identity, when you look at passages like this in the scripture. Second, secondly, there's also great encouragement to be found when in the meantime, until that day comes and whenever it happens, there's great encouragement in knowing, verses six and seven, your assignment. You have an identity as a believer. You also, and I do, have an assignment. And here's where our theme of of readiness, we've talked throughout our study of Thessalonians about readiness. It's front and center once again in this passage. Look again at verses 6 and 7. So then, so because of what? Because we are not of night nor of darkness. We belong to Christ. We are walking in the light. We are sons and daughters of the day. Let us not sleep as others do. Now, point of clarification. The word that Paul uses here for sleep is not the same word he used for sleep last week in chapter 4. If you were here last week, Paul talked about those who sleep. Those who sleep, who remembers? They were in that passage what? They were dead. Those who are dead in Christ, asleep in Christ. He does not use the same word here. In chapter 4, the word for sleep meant dead. In chapter 5, you know what it means? Lazy. Indifferent. Inattentive. Unprepared. 
So then let us not be inattentive, unprepared, lazy as others are, as others do, but let us be alert and sober. That is not referring to alcoholism. That's not referring to drunkenness or inebriation. It means to be calm, cool, collected, and prepared. Don't be like those who are indifferent and lazy. Be among those who are aware of what's happening. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. And what that means, again, and we'll see this unpacked further in the next couple of verses as well. You know what that means our assignment is with the day of the Lord in view? This is going to happen because God is faithful. God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And our assignment, what we are being told here is this. It is that knowing Christ will return, knowing that Jesus is coming back, and understanding that the day of the Lord means everybody's going to get exactly what God has promised them, judgment for sinners, salvation for those who've trusted Christ. You know what our assignment is? It's very simple. Pay, listen, pay attention without panicking. Your assignment between now and then in mind is to pay attention to what's going on and not panic. Not be afraid. Not lose your cool, not lose your head. Listen, if every newscast you watch or you hear or you read on the internet puts a pit in your stomach, if your hope rises and falls with today's presidential tracking poll, if you are walking around with a little black rain cloud above your head, worried, despairing, troubled all the time, listen, you may be a believer in Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's saying? You're not behaving like one. You're not. You may be a believer but you're not behaving like one. Because, because panic, and listen, some of you know me and you know my story well. I am someone who is wired to panic. I'm wired to worry. I'm wired to be afraid. So I'm not talking to you. I am talking from personal experience. I fight this battle every day. Even so, I think what Paul is implying here is this. If panic is part of your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, one of two things is wrong. Either A, you've not read your Bible and you don't understand what's going on, Or B, you've read your Bible and you don't believe it's true. No, take God at his word. That he means what he says. When he's in charge, he's in control, it's going somewhere, and then we're on the winning side. Either we haven't read it, so we don't know it, or we have, and we don't believe it. But we should. Because our assignment's very simple. Pay attention, don't panic. God knows what he's doing. God has a plan. It is going somewhere, and he will make sure it gets there. So we can be encouraged, number one, when we know our identity. We belong to Jesus Christ. That puts us on the winning side. When we know our assignment, then in the meantime, we can pay attention, we can see what's happening, and we don't have to live in fear. Third, why don't we have to live in fear? Or how don't we live in fear? When we know our resources. When as believers in Jesus Christ, we know, we understand our resources. You know, when I was a kid, my brother and I, we were very close in age, Uh, We knew that at our grandma's house, there was one drawer in the kitchen that was ours. Grandma had lots of drawers and lots of cupboards, but one drawer was exclusively for me and my brother. And what I mean by that is we knew every time we went over, there was always a treat in that drawer for us. It didn't matter how often we came. It didn't matter how long we stayed. It was like manna in the wilderness. Every day, you just open it up, and there's something else waiting for you in there. Hershey bar, bag of M&Ms, dollar bill, Star Wars action figures. It was great. It was always there. We knew it was there. We knew it was for us. And furthermore, we understood she never even had to tell us. We knew she expected us to go to that drawer and take what was ever, whatever was in it because whatever we took out, she'd replace the next day. 
Man, I loved that knowledge. It was the first place I went every time, and I never felt ashamed of it. Just open the drawer, take what's there for me. And as believers in Jesus Christ who know the day of the Lord is approaching, God's done the same thing for you. God has done the same thing for us. Look at verse 8. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, let us be alert, let us be attentive, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. What's Paul saying? He's saying that during the season of expectation, during the season of waiting and watching, God has not left us unprepared. God has not left us unequipped. He's left us something. It's armor. Implying what? Reminding us what? Life on earth is a battle. The spiritual life is a battle. But I think you'd agree with me if you're looking again at verse 8. It's armor unlike anything this world has ever seen. It's not iron and steel. It's not Kevlar and whatever else. It's different. Look at what he says in verse 8. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate. What does a breastplate cover? Your what? Your heart. Your internal organs, but most importantly, your heart. The breastplate, and what does he call it? The breastplate of, of faith and of love. What is he saying? What I believe he's saying here is this. One of the the things we're supposed to do, watching and waiting in the meantime, not fearing, not panicking, is nurture that daily relationship. Faith is my relationship with God. Love is my relationship with you. Nurture those things daily. You want to be less panicked? You want to be more prepared? Spend time, as we know we should, with God every day. And spend time in the body of Christ, interacting with your fellow believers. There's great encouragement that comes from that. Paul says, pay attention. You've got this gift, a daily walk with God, a family of believers to walk with. So put on that breastplate of faith and love, and then put on, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The helmet covers what? Your, not a trick question, head. Spiritually speaking, your mind, your thoughts, what you know, and what you believe. And he says specifically in verse 8, as a helmet, excuse me, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul's saying there are some things that need to be running through your mind, firmly implanted there every single day, the most important of which is this, the hope of salvation. That he who died for us and rose for us and promised to come back for us is, as the song said, faithful. Faithful. That this is not the end, that what we see is not all there is. Daily, put on that helmet, reminding yourself, being reminded of the precious truths of God's Word. And Paul is saying, these are your resources. (laughs) Like my grandma's candy drawer, it's there, it's there for you, and God expects you to use it. He expects you to access it. He has given us these things so that we can be ready and encouraged with the day of the Lord in view. We don't have to panic. Because God guards our hearts and God guards our minds. And when our hearts and minds are right, everything else tends to fall into place, whatever our circumstances may be. And then there's one more thing. Paul says we can be encouraged with the day of the Lord in view. In fact, we are to encourage one another with the day of the Lord in view when we know our identity, we know our assignment, we know our resources, and we know our destination. Fourth and finally, when we know and when we remember our destination. Let me tell you something about Bible prophecy. The most important thing about any Bible prophecy is not. Everybody say, it's not. It's not what it says is going to happen to us. That's what we're drawn to. 
Will I be here for the tribulation or won't I? Will I see the return of Christ or won't I? We look at Bible prophecy, and, and, and it's fine. It's a good question. Ask, what does it mean to me? What does it mean for me? That is not the most important thing about any Bible prophecy. You know what the most important thing is about every Bible prophecy? What it tells us about Jesus Christ. What it reminds us of about his character, about his nature, about his attributes, about his identity. The most important thing about every Bible prophecy is what it expresses about the Lord. And so verses 9 and 10, they're a wonderful assurance for us. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep... We will live together with him. That's a great promise to us, amen? I'm happy about that promise. I like what it says there. But you know why that promise, those things are true? Because of what it tells us about who Jesus Christ is. What it tells us about him. And I believe, this is my opinion, you may see something different. I believe the attribute of Jesus Christ that stands out here the most in these two verses is his mercy. His mercy that our God is a... Mercy means not getting what you deserve, right? Talks about or reveals to us something about his mercy. Look again at what he says. Verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I call that mercy. I repented of my sin. I trusted in Christ as Savior, that what he did on the cross was done for me. He has forgiven my sins, given me eternal life. Not what I deserve. That's mercy. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 10. So that whether we are awake or asleep, it's the same word here. It still means lazy, indifferent, inattentive. Even if we are that, as opposed to being as he said, awake, alert, sober, which is what we're supposed to do. Listen, I'm not saying this. Paul is saying it under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Whether we pay attention or not, we will live together with him. I call that mercy too. I do. Because it means that even if I don't get my act together, even if I fall flat on my face while following Jesus, even if I'm not living the attentive life I'm called to live, and listen, I'm not endorsing complacent Christianity. There are great benefits and blessings to living an obedient Christian life, growing in holiness and devotion to the Lord. What's he saying? Even if I don't, but I know Christ, I will live together forever with him. That's mercy. Rich Mullins used to sing, there's a wideness in God's mercy I cannot find in my heart. That's verse 10. That's not my definition of mercy, but it's God's. He's merciful to his people. What am I saying? I'm saying your personal performance does not change your final destination. It simply goes all the way back to identity. Do you or do you not? Have you or have you not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? That's the bottom line. That's the most important question. Many years ago in his book, The Case for Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote the following referring to what we've looked at here today, the end of the world as we know it, the day of the Lord, the end times. He said, God is going to invade, all right. But what's the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. 
For this time, that time, it will be God without disguise. He's saying when Christ came the first time as a baby, that's sort of a disguise. We didn't see it. We didn't understand it. When Christ comes back, it will be God without disguise. Everyone will know, Lewis is saying, who it is. And it will be, he continues, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And Lewis says, and that will not be the time for choosing. Listen, it will be the time when we discover what we've really chosen, what we chose today. Lewis concludes, now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. And God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. So here's the question. Are you ready or not for the day of the Lord? Are you ready for the day of the Lord or not? Because here's the big idea this morning. The day of the Lord is not to be doubted. It's not. As believers, we shouldn't doubt that it's coming and that our relief and our rescue and our ultimate salvation, not just from the penalty and the power, but the presence of sin, it is a sure thing. Do not doubt the day of the Lord. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, don't you dare doubt it either. Because if you continue in your doubt and you continue in your resistance, a day is going to come when Jesus Christ returns, when your reasons for resisting and doubting are going to seem awfully and tragically ridiculous. And then it will be too late. See, that's scary. Exactly. Exactly. But God's mercy is extended to all of us today. So do not doubt the day of the Lord. Instead, decide how you will respond to it. Father, every time we look at your word, is always an hour for choosing is always a moment of decision. It's just that sometimes the choices are clearer and starker than others. Father, what you reveal to us here about yourself and about the future in this passage, it isn't everything we want to know. It doesn't answer all the questions that we have, but it shows us what we need to know, which is that the day of the Lord is coming, a day of great judgment for some and a day of ultimate salvation for others. And the difference isn't whether we lived as good people. It isn't our background, our heritage, or anything else. It's whether or not we willingly and freely chose Jesus Christ. Father, I plead with you today for those in this room who are resisting Jesus Christ or who've never heard before and now realize they have a choice to make. And Father, as you hold back for another day, on this day, even in this moment, in their hearts, may they say, Lord, I choose you. I repent of my sin. I trust Jesus Christ. I still have questions, but I want salvation. And in your mercy, Father, in your mercy, receive them, your children. Father, for those of us who are walking life's path, we don't know what a given day holds. Some days are good and some days are hard. Some days are triumph and some are tragic. But Father, we've been promised a day. The day of the Lord is for us too. Father, help us as we walk to be encouraged, to encourage one another with our identity and our assignment and our destination and our resources to remember that the one who promised is faithful and that on that day, all of our greatest hopes and more will be satisfied. Father, thank you for loving us enough to tell us the whole truth 
and then giving us the freedom to willingly come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.